I mean, God, I can't even, some of the stuff that people climb now, I couldn't even imagine, you know, like, I remember I told Sharma about Mandala at the Buttermilks, and uh, I've, when I first saw that thing, it was like me, Calc, and John Long were walking by, I was, I was like looking at the rock, like, dude, there's like holes here, man. I bet you John Gill's son will be able to do this someday. And they looked at me and they're like, you're flipped, no one's ever climbing this shit, dude. And all of a sudden now it's like, it's got a butt start, you know, it's like nothing. You know, so, I don't know. It's hard to say what's good, how good people are gonna do. Welcome to A Brief History of Climb. I'm James Howell. And I'm doing this because in the grand scheme of things, climbing as we know it has only been around for the blink of an eye. It's incredible to think about how much has changed within our little sport, even over the last half century or so. So in the famous words of the talking heads, my mission on this podcast is to answer, how did we get here? What happened to get from John Gill to Sean Rabatou? How did style go from three points on the rock at all times to all points off dinos? When did ethics shift from ground up trad climbing on the big walls of Yosemite to using ladders and fans to work on obscure hinterland boulders? I actually think that there are answers to all of these questions. And by figuring out those answers, you get to learn about the people and the places and the things that brought your biggest passion in the world, climbing, to where it is today. And here, I'll, I'll give you a quick sense of what I mean. Here's a quick example. Why does bouldering at Joshua Tree matter? Joshua Tree is obviously a great climbing area and it's got tons of amazing history, not to mention the incredible desert landscape and the landmark funky trees that it takes its name from. But I've heard it said before that Joshua Tree has a chip on its shoulder. You see the crags and the summits in Joshua Tree, they aren't exactly high, especially compared to nearby places like Yosemite and the Sierras. And back in the day, this was kind of a big deal. The locals in Joshua Tree actually had some inferiority complex because of it. In fact, at the start of the first Joshua Tree guidebook ever, which was published in the early 70s, the author John Wolfe states, this area should not be misconstrued as merely substitute practice for the better-known meccas of the climber. It stands on its own merit of providing short, challenging, free, and aid routes. I mean, that's how he kicked off the book. That's, that was the first thing that he felt it was important to share with people before they continued reading the guidebook. But the reality was, in the 1970s and the early 80s, Joshua Tree really was not seen as a place to do cutting edge climbs, but rather it was a place to hone your skills and practice. It has amazing winter weather and it was known as the place to go when everywhere else was either too wet or too cold to climb. Famously, the stone masters, folks like Lynn Hill and John Backer, they would train there all winter and they'd come up with long bouldering circuits and do just tons of laps on hard climbs. And that brings me to this important point. One of the regulars of the park was the legendary stone master, John Yablonski. And in my short intro episode here, I'm not going to go into detail about this man with the nickname Yabo. I'm going to save that for a future episode, I promise. Except for one quiet yet monumental shift that he brought to the world of bouldering. 
Now, this story is a little bit mysterious. I don't know exactly what boulder this was on or the day, but in the late 1970s, while doing one of his regular Joshua Tree practice circuits that he would pretty much do every single day in the winter, he walks up to a big grayish brown boulder and he's about to start it. As usual, the start holds, they were around chest height. But before he starts, he looks down and he notices a hold below where the regular start was. After doing these problems so many times, it seemed kind of cool to try something new. So he decides to do the problem starting from down there. It was actually so low that he had to sit in the dirt in order to start it. And his friends who were seeing him starting down there, they simply shook their heads and reminded themselves to make fun of him for it later around the campfire. From sitting in the dirt, he grabbed the low hold, pasted his feet, and tried to get established on the problem. And it was harder. In fact, it was a lot harder. It took him a few tries, but he managed to get his butt off the ground and continue the problem. But then the whole rest of the problem was way harder because he was more tired from that tough start. Despite the hardship, he really enjoyed the challenge, and he kept doing it and looking for more low starts. Other climbers in Joshua Tree, after their initial bemusement, they started doing it too, and they named it the Yabo Start after him. These days, we call it a sit start, and pretty much every hard boulder starts sitting from the ground. And I mean, I think this is such a fascinating story. I want you to imagine going to your favorite bouldering area and not seeing a single sit start. Wouldn't that be so weird? But the reality is, is that people didn't always do that. At so many points in climbing's history, things happened that ended up defining the way that we do things now. And it's because of that that I like to see the history of Joshua Tree a little bit differently. What you actually had going on in Joshua Tree was pretty incredible. It was a place where the best climbers of the age would flock to climb together and practice and experiment. And then at night, everyone would hang out around the campfires and they would share stories and ideas. And from there, those ideas spread and they started invading other areas until eventually that just became the way that things are. And that's the type of thing that we're gonna do deep dives into on this podcast. If you're anything like me, you know, the type of person who always reads the history pages at the start of your guidebooks, I think you're going to enjoy this journey with me. And in the coming weeks, I look forward to diving into topics like the evolution of the dino, what happened to Bukes, France in the early 1980s, how Switzerland became a bouldering mecca, and why Wolfgang Gullick is such a legend. Stay tuned for the first proper episode in the next week. And once again, welcome to A Brief History of Climb. I'm James Howell, and I'll see you next time.